This week on the Pete the Planner Show, we answer your money questions. Here's how the show works. You email us, askpete at petetheplanner.com. That's askpete at petetheplanner.com. And we may participate in that conversation. By we, I don't mean French for yes. I mean Damien Dunn joins me now. Hello, Dame. Hey, Pete. Dame, we do have the same last name, but as your t-shirt notes right now, we are not related. Fantastic. You can always catch this show in uh, on your local radio station. You can catch the podcast, which we release on Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. And you can join us for the live tape broadcast on Fridays, Eastern, wait, noon Eastern on Facebook and YouTube. So Dame, let's get after it here this week. Dear Peter Dunn. We came to the United States as refugees in 2004. My son was 19 years old. We had no money, no friends, no computer, and no knowledge of English. According to the tradition of my family and my husband's family to have an education, we sent our son to study. We believed the propaganda of the university employees that he would be provided with work so that he would not be afraid to take out loans and find cosigners. Nobody provided an interpreter, did not explain to us how the process of calculating interest works, that from the date of signing the contract, everyone's financial history will be ruined, but we were actively informed that we should not start paying before graduation. As a result, our debt is $260,000 plus huge interest, and five LEP families of our friends and our family, Dame let us know, by the way, that LEP means... Uh limited english proficiency okay so plus huge interest and five limited english proficiency families of our friends and our family are in disastrous situations too they send us bills for almost four thousand dollars the hardest truth is that from 2011 to 2014 my son did not find a job before completing his bachelor's degree he had a severe accident that was not his fault we are not people with a stone heart and do not want our former friends to pay for us. We've been looking for help for almost five years and cannot find it. Banks do not offer a relief plan. We are ready to make reasonable payments on my husband's income, but the bank also disagrees. Lawyers are not willing to help us. My son cannot work because of his illness after the accident. Advise us a way out. So, oh, Dame. Yeah, there's a few things going on here, isn't there? Dame, you and I had a conversation, the pre-show, the pre-pre-show. Uh, you know, look, we are a financial problem-solving organization. We we talk to real people every day going through some stuff. And sometimes the stuff's pretty easy to fix. And sometimes the stuff rips your heart out for a couple of days. And, and we've run up across a few of those as of late. And we're glad to be a sounding board for those people. But this is one of those situations that calls a lot into question. I I would like to point out that there's a very astute observation here um, that's not going to be a popular observation, Uh, that A, the university employees operated with propaganda, (laughs) which I I find to be well said, very frankly, and that there, there were assurances over and over, over again, that employment would be a big, uh, part of the other side of that education, especially for a family who doesn't speak English. Dame, how, how true is that? How, how, how true do you think that higher ed 
plays into the deepest insecurities of not only English-speaking citizens of America, but immigrants and refugees who may not speak English. Uh, the first thing I wanted to do was to break this down to a, the, just the base level. This is an experience that you don't have to be a refugee or someone foreign to our country to experience. I'm sure there are plenty of American families that go through something really similar to this saying, it's okay. Take, uh, take that loan. You're going to have plenty of jobs. And sometimes they just don't materialize. So here you are with a ton of debt with a degree that may or may not yield the type of job that you were hoping for, or a job that's good enough to, to pay off the debt that you've now accumulated and it's a horrible situation. Uh, do colleges uh, promote their their services? Absolutely. Do they go a little aggressive sometimes? Uh, honestly, if I had to guess, I think that may be uh, rolling back a little bit. If you look at the dates in this email, 2004, I mean, this that was to me like prime, hey, everybody goes to college, everybody gets a degree, and we'll find money for you. Don't worry about it. Just come and sign your name on the dotted line. So I want to think the environment has changed a little bit uh, since since they went through this process, but I'm not 100% sure. Dame, you know, in our industry, I should say our former industry, which was more specifically investment advising, there was always the phrase past performance is not indicative of future performance, which meant financial advisors, investment advisors specifically couldn't just you know, slam returns in front of their investors' faces and say, look, hey, we've averaged 20% return for the last three years because past performance mm -hmm. is not indicative of future performance. I feel like this mantra has not made its way to higher ed. No. And by the way, going back and looking at the dates, think when they would have graduated. If, he, if they came to the country in 2004 and he started education right then, yikes. Yeah, oh yeah, we talk about what happened in May of 2020 and what will likely happen in May of 2021. Try graduating in May of 2008 or May of 2009. And yeah, man, and then the accident. So there's a couple things. Um, neither of what I'm about to say, uh, neither of these things are helpful, Dame. But number one, I would love for the college president to read this letter. And it's, I'm not being punitive or petty. I just, I, I just would like for them to reflect on that. Like, what do they have to say? You know, you and I are experts at money, but there's nothing you and I or the system can do about this. But I'm curious as to how the president of the offending university would go. And, and again, this isn't the university's fault per se. They certainly didn't help matters, but it's not their fault. This is just one of those situations that you and I see from time to time, a few times a year. Just the whole thing sucks. It just, it just, there's nothing you can do about it. And it's, and it's awful. And which brings me to my second point. There's literally nothing they can do about it. Other than choose to do the best they can in ignoring the debt and, and just living with the, 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 the ramifications. I'll say this. This sounds morose. Whenever that young man passes away, whenever that is, 50 years from now or tomorrow, as long as they didn't reconsolidate or consolidate those debts or, or whatever, those loans will be forgiven. But if the parents took out Parent PLUS loans, um, 
then they're still on the hook. Yeah, I'm I'm not entirely sure if they're federal, if they're private, if what what we've got mixed up here because the, they keep saying banks, which makes me wonder if there private. are private loans in there as well. And Absolutely. I, I would reach out to the lenders or the servicers, whoever it is, if your son is disabled, there's in their their federal loans, there's a really good chance that they get forgiven. Uh, especially if it's a permanent and total disability. But it sounds like they've been down that path, did it not, in the email? That's what makes me think they're private. And yeah. very few private lenders may have uh, programs like that. So there may not be a real easy solution. I really wish there was. You know, when we come back from the break, we're, we're actually talking more about student loans. It's a student loan Sunday. I don't know. Um, there's been a really unfortunate consequence of the popularity of refinancing your student loans with with really cool companies that uh, we're not naming names, by the way, because I just don't need the email from the corporate attorney from that company. But there's some really unfortunate consequences to all the refi going on in student loans. And we're going to talk about that next. Sorry for the downer on that first email, but this is life. This is the work we do. And unfortunately, it happens that way sometimes. Coming back, more of the Pete the Planner Show. I'm Pete the Planner. Back on the Pete the Planner show. Man, that last segment, Dame. Yikes. Good choice. Yeah, I'm sorry. Well, look, man, I want people to understand. I don't ever get in the, well, these people have a worst contest. I don't think that's very uh, cathartic for anybody. But sometimes it's okay to lean into other people's pain and try to understand what they're going through. And that was one of them. And they aren't the only family that experiences this. I mean, there are probably countless families that are going through a very, very similar situation. Um, there needs to be an answer for it. And there's just not right now. This reminds me, you know, they were a refugee family. Um, I, I was talking to a friend of mine uh, on a Zoom call actually earlier today in a meeting. And he mentioned he had that picture of the San, the San Francisco Bridge behind him as his Zoom background. And he said, well, I have this as my Zoom background because this is where I came to America. And then he gave the date in which he and his family came to America when he was eight years old from Nicaragua. And, and I said to him, I was like, you know, it never occurred to me if you're a refugee or an immigrant that when you come to America, you remember the day. Mm. You know, it just never yeah. even occurred to me. But I just I found that interesting. Um, anyway. did, uh, did you say the San Francisco Bridge? Uh, did, I, uh, the gold, did I say the San Francisco Bridge? I meant the Golden Gate Bridge. Did I really say the San Francisco? Oh, boy, that's embarrassing. Did I really say that? I think so. We'll leave the commenters uh, to confirm that. God, that's uncomfortable. All right, Dame. So you and I sort of sniffed out this weird problem this week uh, in relation to what some oh people who have student loan debt might be going through. And, and, and the context of this revolves around the CARES Act. So in late March, uh, early April, when the CARES Act became a thing, it pushed off the obligation for federal student loan borrowers to make a payment through the end of September. So that is to say, Dame, the way the Fed was able to pull this off is they just made the interest rate 0% during that time frame, mm -hmm. which means people don't accumulate more interest and they were also forgiven the obligation for the six months to make payments. Now, this was great. 
this this was interesting, and I think it helped a lot of people. And as as you and I have talked about a lot, for people who have been greatly impacted by the recession, it was just one less thing they had to worry about, which was nice. And for people that weren't greatly impacted but don't have a lot of savings, it allowed them to then redirect what would have been student loan payments towards their savings account, and hopefully they did that. And then President Trump issued an executive order a couple weeks ago extending that same benefit, more or less, through the end of 2020, which again, if you're in group one or group two, what we just discussed, that is a pretty darn good benefit if it is held up in court that he's allowed to do that. That's neither here nor there. But there's a giant group of people that wasn't a group of people probably five years ago, but certainly is now. And those are people who refinance their student loans through very popular, very, very popular and trendy consumer student loan debt services. And Dame, why is that? Why, when you consolidate your debt, did what happened within the CARES Act and President Trump's executive order mean nothing to you? Uh, timing is, uh, is everything, right? So if you would have taken those federal loans the, that you had, consolidated them into one big private loan with one of the aforementioned or unmentioned companies, all those benefits aren't applicable or applicable to you at that point. You are now on a payment schedule with that private lender, and that is your lot in life. Yeah, so people refinance debts, all types of debts for lots of different reasons, but specifically as it relates to student loans at a period of your life where just the idea that you're paying for knowledge, you're paying for that experience, it's an unsettling feeling. So you feel like you have to do something. And often what people do is, well, we're going to refinance our loans because we don't want our loans with A, the federal government. Like that's a thing. Dame, where people are like, oh, I don't want to be in business with them. <laughs> and then the interest rate. But sometimes it's not because they're trying to pay it off faster necessarily, but sometimes they're just trying to lower the payment or, or, or sometimes they um, want to have the least amount of interest over the entire amount of the loan paid, but it's never really one focused reason. And as a result, some of the benefits that are available to you via federally backed student loans, such as the ability of the federal government to press pause on your obligations, are, are again, are not applicable to your life. And, and I, this came to my attention this week. I've been thinking about it a little bit over the last few months, but it came to my attention because in the last two years specifically, more employers are offering student loan benefits to employees, which means either A, uh, introducing them to these student loan refinancers uh, through the company's time, or they're participating in a program where the employer actually matches some of your payments to student loan uh, debts. And I just thought, what a weird problem. Because a lot of, the air quotes for the radio people, savvy young people are using these types of services. And those savvy young people are also statistically most affected by this recession from a job and income loss standpoint. And it's uh, just sort of a nice, sad reality to stack on top of the sad reality of the first segment. The whole student loan uh, repayment process is 
probably wrapped up with more decisions than most people want to give it credit for? I mean, what job do you have? Who do you work for? What forgiveness programs may or may not be available to you? Uh, consolidation, interest rates, um, having a whole bundle of loans, federal loans at different interest rates. And you know, if you consolidate with the federal government, what does that loan, loan rate get down to or the average loan rate to work out to? Uh, it, it's not as simple and straightforward as one may think, unfortunately. I mean, I, I'd like to make this as simple as possible for for everybody that goes through the process. And to have a private company stand out to the side and say, listen, we can take all that and give you one flat rate that's probably going to be lower than than what you can get through the federal government. Why wouldn't somebody do that on the face of it? If you aren't familiar with all the other benefits that could come along with having the government be able to, uh, you know, wave a wand and change things for you on a temporary basis or maybe even permanent basis down the road. It's a tough call. And and I don't blame anybody that refinanced in 2019 for seeing, not seeing this coming. So Dame, uh, we're going to play a little game. It's called the one to 10 game. And what we're evaluating today is how good a job parents and prospective students do in the year let's say 2019, because we're not going to evaluate anyone in the year 2020, at taking into account the impact of student loans before they head to school. Okay, so as they sign up to go to a particular school and they take on the obligation to pay it, how in tune are parents and families and students with what comes after that in the year 2019? 10 is they are amazingly in touch and they know what they're signing up for one being they're absolutely clueless voluntarily or otherwise. Where in the year, we're skipping 2020, where in the year 2019, fall of 2019, where were parents and families on the one to 10 scale? I'm going to say it's a five. Damien, where are parents and families in the year 2004 on this exact same scale? Oh, two. So we've made in 14 years. 2016 years. I'm good with math. Um, we've made not a lot of progress. Not as much as we should have. No. You know, this is one of my hot button issues. Like, I, I really feel like people can do themselves a lot of favors by just figuring this silly thing out respectfully. I know it's easier said than done, and I'm shouting down the mountain. But anyway, coming up after the break, more uplifting content. No, actually, we're going to talk about looking back on past decisions. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those shows. I'm Pete the Planner. I'm the host. So sorry about you. Back on the Pete the Planner show. There were no technical difficulties during the break. Hey, Dame, this has been a little bit of a Debbie Downer show talking about 200 quarter million dollars in student loan debt for someone who's now disabled and the family's financial life is ruined. And of course, we talked about people who've refinanced their student loans away from federal loans and now don't reap the benefits of the CARES Act and President Trump's executive order during the worst conditions in our country financially in 100 years. But now we're going to go in a little different direction. It's actually a little bit more joyful just by the sense that you can't get less joyful than those first two. So, Dame, I've noticed this interesting trend where because people are struggling, a, a particular decision they made in the past is specifically hurting them. An example would be, hey, our car payment of I'm making our car payment of five hundred and fifty dollars a month no longer makes any sense. 
right? Sure. And and so that decision, when someone says that, they, they go, oh, it doesn't make any sense. And then they follow it with, but it made sense at the time. It made sense at the time. And, and I find that to be interesting. And again, this feels very judgmental, sounds very judgmental, but, but I want to explore this concept of looking on our past decisions, which now hurt us, and just wrapping them up with, it made sense at the time. And the reason I want to do this is because I've just found that a lot of times people say that, and it actually made no sense at the time. And if you don't acknowledge that, you're going to consistently make poor decisions. I can see the line of thought. I think I could come up with a few uh, interesting scenarios, reasonable scenarios that, sure. that might uh, conflict with this. But I, I, I see where you're going with it, and I don't necessarily disagree. Here's a, here's a more specific example, actually revolves around car payments, because I think that's one of the easier ways to, to do this. It, it's any time you push the limits of a proper budget, you, you say, all right, I know I should have 15% of my income going to transportation. That, that is the official ideal household budget number here at your money line and hay money. 15% includes car payment, fuel, and insurance. But we're okay because we do well. So let's make it 22%. So that doesn't make sense. There's just no ifs, ands, or buts. That makes no sense. And so if it doesn't hurt you when you make that decision, and it only hurts you when you're t- you're, the tide turns, you can't say, well, it made sense at the time because it actually didn't. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, now, I still like to have some room for flexibility in somebody's budget. And if we're going to sit on the, the car example, in this case, 15% transportation budget, if somebody wants to go up with 20%, well, you better show me where you're taking the money from and that it's not going to be an issue in the future. Yeah, I'm going to actually, for those people joining us uh, on our Facebook stream, I'm going to pull up a graphic here. Um, I'm going to go full screen on it because it, it is the household budget that, that we, you and I talk about all the time, Dame. Mm-hmm. And so the, the issue with the household budget is there are areas where there is that flexibility, where you can have creative liberties. For instance, housing. We like people of their take-home pay to put about 25% towards housing. Dame, as you and I know... Yes, you can absolutely go higher than this. Sometimes you have to go higher on this based on where you live in the country. It's just not reasonable, like in you know the coasts, to spend twenty five percent of your income. It's just it's just not possible. Also, sometimes people like to use a fifteen year payment, and so that twenty five percent finds its way to thirty three percent. And so you're right. Sometimes housing makes um, sense to to expand upon that. But I will also say with that, Dame. People also get themselves in trouble. It is another example of, well, it made sense at the time. No, probably probably didn't if you have an unforced error with too much housing costs. Now, transportation being the next largest uh, expenditure in the average person's financial life, we have that at 15%. And the reason I'm pulling this up and the point I wanted to make is that you can't spend more than 15%. In no circumstance, in my estimation, does it make sense to spend more than 15% of your income on transportation unless you're driving a car that goes up in value? You're spending money on a depreciating asset. It doesn't make sense to me. Okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll acquiesce on that. I, coming from, I, you know me, I love cars. Yeah, this I, is I, not a judgment of your car loving or lack of car loving. I know you. You are ambivalent to cars other than wanting to drive a nice one, a nice, reliable car. 
Reliable, not flashy. Yeah, not flashy. Definitely not flashy. Uh, <laughs> you you think it's flashy? Hey, no, it's not flashy. It's reliable. It's very reliable. Anywho, it's. I would leave more room for for preference in there, uh, but fifteen percent. Yeah, you're you got to draw a line somewhere. Fifteen percent is probably reasonable. I guess where I'm going with this is uh, we all take calculated risks, right? We we all take calculated risks, and sometimes we do it in the hope that our career and our income continues on a similar path. And I get that. I've done that, Dame. I'm guessing you have probably done that. But I think what we're learning is that our paths aren't guaranteed and that when you are looking to find stability in the darkest time in our nation's economy's history, it well, that's a little much in the last hundred years. Wiggle room is so important. Not only having an emergency fund, but not always putting the pressure on yourself of your income. That's why I think sometimes people ruin their financial lives by simply putting so much pressure on their ability to earn more and more and more and more. And having been there in my early 30s, where I made financial decisions as a bet that I'd be able to cover those decisions, there was a lot of pressure and and I absolutely regret it. I feel like you're setting us up to say, uh, as of today, we're reducing the transportation allocation in the uh, household budget to 12 or 10%, and we're going to increase the savings percentage. Is that, is that where this is going? No, I, I think 15% is a good number. I just don't think it's one that can go up. But, you know, it's like food. You know, food is in our budget at 12%, groceries and dining out and, and you know, yeah, imbibing, libations, right? So... You know, do you want to add more than that? Sure, but what what are you taking out of? Uh, maybe you don't have a lot of money going towards transportation. Well, that's fine. Maybe put it towards food. Um, but what people tend to do, which I guess is your ultimate point here, Dame, is if we've got ten percent of a person's income after they they get paid going towards paying off debt and saving money, that's what gets cut out. Mm-hmm. That's what people are cutting out to fund transportation and to fund dining out instead of. Cutting back on entertainment or something like that. Maybe in these days, uh, clothing is just going to get cut out of the budget almost altogether because who needs nice clothes to go to the office? Who needs long pants? I will tell you this. Oh, uh, opening my closet and seeing suits that I like is a little bit sad uh, for a couple reasons. Number one, I just don't wear them anymore. Uh, and number two, in a good way, I've lost so much weight, none of them fit. So that's that's a really good thing. Uh, way to squeeze a humble brag in there. No, no, that was a stone cold brag. But Dave, do you do you see what I mean? It's like if if you drive in your car and you don't put on your seatbelt and you don't get it into an accident, then it's not like you can feel justified in not wearing your seatbelt. But the second you get into an accident, you're forced to reckon with your decisions. And I think that's what's happening financially right now is so many people and, and this, every personal finance statistic in America uh, supports this. Everyone in America, uh, on average, struggles so much with personal finance decisions and behavior, and not because of wages. Yes, there are people that struggle because of their wage, 
But there's a giant pocket of people who don't, that live on the edge, that don't value stability, that, that instead value the comfort of their lifestyle. They're the ones right now evaluating the prudence of wearing a seatbelt. I am all in favor of increasing awareness of one family or one individual's financial situation. I, I think that would be a tremendous difference maker in the country. One person's? Just one. Just one. Dame, coming up after the break, biggest waste of money of the week and some current events. Yes, there are some current events and there still is no additional stimulus bill. You're on your own, everybody. I hope you're growing food. That's just what it feels sometimes. All right. (laughs) That's more of the Pete the Planner show right after the break. I'm Pete the Planner. This week's biggest waste of money of the week, the Boam, right here on the Pete the Planner Show, is luxury brand high-end face masks. Dame, it turns out we are in a global pandemic. Had you heard? What? Yes, we are super spreaders. When you breathe, other people get your germs, and 5 million Americans have had COVID-19. Hmm. I had no idea. It's the truth. And now high-end luxury brands like Burberry are stepping up to help solve the problems for fashionable sartorialists. Thank goodness. I just wanted to say fashionable sartorialists. That's very well said. For $120 or 90 pounds, the masks have been released. The UK-based luxury brand Burberry announces that its iconic pattern will be available for you to, you know, protect yourself. Actually, protect others by wearing the mask. The brand said that 20% of the proceeds of the overpriced masks uh, will be given to the Burberry Foundation COVID-19 Community Fund, which uh, serves specifically to help fashionable people in trying times. I made up part of that. How thoughtful. (laughs) How thoughtful. Dame, uh, what is your go-to mask? You've got... Do you have your crown royal mask out in the, the shed there? I don't. It's inside. So I've got the crown mask. I've got uh, a couple uh, Vera Bradley masks. Nice, oh, nice. Uh, pink, pink paisley that I, uh, I I wear every once in a while. And then just the generic surgical mask as well. Yeah. I've got a Pacers mask and a paisley mask uh, on my own that, uh, you know, it's pretty high fashion. I've, I've uh, been getting into the gaiters a little bit. Yeah, that you just wear around your neck and pull up, but apparently those aren't kosher anymore. I know. I was big into the gator scene, especially at soccer games, but but then now there's there's pushback that the gators are okay again. As long as I'm staying six feet away from people, does it matter? Uh, I don't know. I'm not a doctor. Dame, UNC Chapel Hill converts to remote learning after reporting 135 new cases and the University of Notre Dame, I said it correctly, uh, has going to virtual learning for two weeks as they deal with some significant issues. I don't know. I, you know, I always say I'm not an I told you so sort of guy. But as we talked on this show over the summer about the prudence of sending your student back to campus when they're just going to be getting an online education, we definitely questioned whether that made sense in light of just going to a less expensive school and then transferring the credits. I, I don't want to say I feel validated in that, that prognostication, but I kind of do. I'm okay with that. I, th- I think the, the big challenge right now for most students is, okay, I can do all my classes online, but how am I going to handle the labs? That's the issue. 
Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I didn't go to class anyway. So, all right, Taco Bell unveils new design with more drive-thrus as the pandemic permanently shifts how we order. That shifts with an F. Taco Bell's latest restaurant design includes two drive-thru lanes, pickup shelves, curbside pickup, and more technology in the kitchen. Um, Dame, did Taco Bell just invent a rallies? <laughs> did rallies have all that stuff? Yes. Really? Oh, God, yes. So I got to think rallies came to central Indiana in late 80s early 90s and remember there was just a real small building uh-huh. you could drive up on either side they yeah. had the walk-up window in front and oh i loved some rallies back in the day they had amazing banana milkshakes they had the seasoned fries and big giant burgers so the big buford was that their uh their deal oh my gosh now i'm starving i've had a protein shake today <laughs> um i am the sort of fellow that likes a banana milkshake that's uh, not great. This is a informed piece of um, statement that I'm about to give. It's an informed statement. Uh, more restaurants are going to start doing this sort of thing. Smaller square foot, carry out, um, fast casual. Like, Dame, I, no one wants in the coming couple years here dining room space. Let me tell you. I was when I saw that article, I started wondering, really, what's what can we expect in the next five years? How do how does new construction change going forward? And then, really, with existing buildings, I mean, there some of those some of those restaurants take up a ton of square feet, foot, footed. Well, nobody knows. And uh, what are they going to do with all of it? I, I just I don't know. Private parties, possibly. I don't know. I, you know, and, and where I live, there are strip malls that were built 15 years ago that look pretty nice other than the fact that they've purposefully let them go and everyone keeps moving out as their leases expire. And then they're just going to tear them down and, and build another one. And you wonder with some respect, if that's, what's going to happen with different levels of commercial real estate. I mean, you look at Salesforce they announced, I believe, uh, Thursday, the 20th of August, that their employees are allowed to now stay home through the end of August 2021. Wow. They have got to be one of the uh, largest commercial real estate le- lessees in the world. Maybe they're going to start subletting some of that space to people who want it. I don't know. This is really interesting. Dame, I've been passing uh, articles and links back and forth with the team about what's going on in New York City. I think we even talked about it on the show last week. Um, one of the more popular pieces I saw this week in Eater, which is a, is a, a food website, is the concept that a lot, some of these restaurants can't afford to pay their rent right now, uh, obviously. But what they could do is they could pay partial rent but since their landlords have kicked them out because they didn't pay rent, everybody loses. And so my question to you is, where's the prudence in that? If you're a landlord, why kick someone out who could, A, afford to pay you something to make your problem a little bit easier, and B, be a little bit more humane to people in a really trying time? What am I missing? 
Well, and C, there's not like there's a line of people beating down your door to put to to come in and take that space over. So I, I don't think you're missing anything. I, I would be happy to extend some grace to a tenant, especially if they've been there quite a while. Uh, pay me a third of what you normally get. And let's see if, if that fits into everybody's budget. Um, now, I think uh, there may be some potential relief for landlords who don't have tenants right now. I seem to re- seem to see recall seeing something about that, but I could be totally making it up too. So don't quote me on that, but maybe it's f- more f- um, advantageous for a, a landlord to not have a space rented right now than to have a tenant that's not paying. Dane, this is a new segment in the show called what industry is about to boom? The segment is called What Industry is About to Boom? So I'm going to toss this over to you to come up with the first industry, which is about to boom based on the current climate we find ourselves in. Uh, By the way, for those people joining along on Facebook Live who can see Damien's face, that face was called, gee, thanks, Pete. Thanks yeah. for putting me on the spot. You, you thought of something uh, 30 seconds ago and decided to just throw it in my lap i appreciate it <laughs> that's how our relationship works uh i i think uh maybe not boom but incre- continue to increase personal fi- uh fitness equipment you know bicycles and whatnot i mean try and find a bicycle at your local bicycle shop it, it ain't gonna happen they're, they've they're having a crazy year so um fitness stuff whether it's an app online uh or or physical tangible equipment that you can go buy. I think, you know, companies like Rogue are having great years too. I think uh, the personal computer space, uh, specifically things like iPhones and uh, Chromebooks and all of those sorts of things are going to continue to boom as we are all forced to learn and work in a different way. Um, I know we live in a school district when our kids went to school, they were all, both of our kids were assigned a Chromebook from the school. I mean, our tax money pays for it, but I think you're going to see more and more of that. All right, Dame, that's all we have time for in this week's show. Thank you for participating uh, momentarily throughout the show. It was mostly enjoyable. All right, everybody, sending good vibes because good vibes are all that's in the budget. I'm Peter Dunn, Pete the Planner, and this was the show.